Welcome back, everyone, to Inflammatory Content, where I give you the latest scientific research related to the fields of immunology and microbiology. Today is March 24th of the year 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic is growing exponentially in many countries around the world. Thankfully, here in the U.S., the practice of social distancing has been taken up by most individuals. This will slow the growth of the pandemic and allow our healthcare system a chance to prepare. If we're already practicing social distancing, what more can we do? Personally, I have started speaking up on social media. I'm typically not one to use websites like Facebook. However, in times like these, us scientifically inclined people must share what we know. Advertise your social distancing and suggest others do the same. Further, let people know other ways they can help. For example, let people know that they can donate any PPE or personal protective equipment, such as goggles, face masks, and gloves. Our healthcare system needs this equipment. One more thing before we get to today's episode. Humans are social creatures, so social distancing can be really hard. Personally, I live in a studio apartment by myself, and I have had little to no face-to-face contact in the last few weeks. How do I cope? go for a run and or a walk every single day. While food options are limited, I try to eat healthy to the best of my ability. Ideally, I speak to one friend or one family member on the phone every day. I limit my news intake, and I have given myself projects to work on, like this podcast. If anyone out there is struggling or just wants to talk, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to try to help. We're all in this together. Okay, without further ado, Let's talk about some science. In today's podcast, we will be covering unconventional T-cells and cancer. Before we discuss unconventional T-cells, let's first talk about conventional T-cells. These are the T-cells most of us probably learned about as undergraduates in our first biology class. They either express CD4 or CD8 surface molecules, depending on whether they are a helper or cytotoxic T-cell subset, respectively and they express the alpha-beta T-cell receptor, or TCR. Conventional T-cells with this type of T-cell receptor respond to peptide antigens presented by MHC molecules. Both the T-cell receptor and the MHC molecules are highly polymorphic, or, more simply put, they vary a lot. TCR and MHC variation allows our conventional T-cells to react to a variety of different antigens, ultimately protecting us from a variety of different pathogens. Classically, identification of antigen-specific T-cells has been difficult. However, a recently developed technique called tetramer staining has made this possible. In this technique, an antigen-presenting receptor complex with antigen is bioengineered, tagged with a fluorochrome, and used to stain T-cells. Using tetramer staining in conjunction with flow cytometry allowed for the identification and purification of antigen-specific T-cells. Not only did this technique yield antigen-specific conventional T-cells, but also unconventional T-cells. These are T-cells that either recognize non-peptide antigen or lack alpha-beta TCRs. This subset of T-cells includes NK T-cells, MAI T-cells, gamma-delta T-cells, and CD8-alpha-alpha-positive IELs, the latter of which were discussed in detail in episode 3. Before the discovery of unconventional T-cells, T-cells were classically considered to function in an adaptive manner, meaning that they don't respond the first time they see antigen. They first have to become sensitized and adapt. It isn't until they've had time to adapt 
usually on the order of two weeks, and they experience antigen again, will they finally function? Unconventional T-cells, on the other hand, have the capacity to function both innately and adaptively. This innate function is typically antigen-independent. Rather, cytokines induce T-cell function. Natural killer T-cells, or NK T-cells, are kind of like T-cells, and they're kind of like NK cells. They're also a heterogeneous group, meaning there's a lot of subtypes. Regardless, all of them are CD1D-restricted cells, which is to say that they recognize glycolipid antigens presented by CD1D, rather than the peptide antigens that are conventionally presented by MHC. These lipid antigens typically come from bacteria, but also can be aberrant host lipids. In terms of bacterial ligands, one example comes from mycobacterium, which causes the disease tuberculosis. While NK T cells do respond to lipid antigen, they still have the same conventional alpha-beta T cell receptor. As mentioned previously, there are several subsets of NK T cells. These subsets are analogous to Th1, 2, and 17 cells, in that they make IFN gamma, IL-4, and IL-17, respectively. There's also another subset of NK T cells based on the T cell receptor. These are called invariant NK T cells, or INKTs. The TCR is still alpha-beta, there's just less diversity across different cells. There are, however, unconventional T cells with totally different TCRs. These are the gamma-delta T cells. And, as their name implies, their TCR is made up of gamma-delta subunits, as opposed to alpha-beta. Like NKT cells, they can also recognize lipids via CD1. But unlike NKT cells, they can also recognize peptide antigen via MHC. The intraepithelial lymphocyte, or IEL, population, which is a heterogeneous group named by localization, contains many gamma-delta T cells. They are analogous to Th17 cells in that they make IL-17 and IL-22, but they can also make IFN gamma, among other cytokines. Both the gamma-delta and NKT unconventional T-cells are thought to be primarily tissue-resident. The NKT cells are mostly found in the liver, whereas the gamma-delta T-cells are primarily found in the gut. Next up, we have MAIT cells, which stands for Mucosal-Associated Invariant T-cells. This is an instance of nomenclature gone wrong. These cells are in fact not primarily mucosal-associated, the majority of them actually circulate the periphery. However, they can be found in high amounts in the liver. Further, they aren't invariant. Their TCRs actually have a high degree of variation. Unlike the T-cells discussed thus far, these T-cells recognize antigen presented by MR1. MR1 is expressed ubiquitously across cell types. In a naive T-cell, it is mostly found in the endoplasmic reticulum, intracellularly. However, it is also expressed in small amounts on the cell surface. This antigen-presenting receptor is famous for presenting microbial metabolites, specifically metabolites of vitamin B. In the context of an infection, microbial metabolites will bind the intracellular MR1, which will then be translocated to the cell surface where it can present the antigen to the T-cell, leading to the production of cytokines, perforin, and granzyme, which ultimately leads to the clearance of the pathogen. Importantly, these T-cells still use alpha-beta T-cell receptors. 
Researchers have recently discovered a novel MR1-restricted non-MAI T-cell subset. They differ from MAI T-cells by the gene segment that makes up the TCR. They also recognize drugs and drug-like molecules as opposed to bacterial metabolites. Interestingly, MR1 is also expressed by cancer cells. This has led researchers to hypothesize that MR1-restricted T-cells could target cancer. In support of this hypothesis, unconventional T-cell infiltration into tumors is associated with good clinical outcomes. Could perhaps this unconventional T-cell subset recognize cancer metabolic intermediates? If so, this monomorphic receptor that varies little across individuals could be a great target for cancer treatment. This thought segues nicely into today's paper, which is titled, Genome-Wide CRISPR-Cas9 Screening Reveals Ubiquitous T-Cell Cancer Targeting Via the Monomorphic MHC Class one Related Protein MR1. This report was published in Nature Immunology in March 2020 by Michael Crowther and colleagues. They are from Cardiff University in the UK. The central hypothesis to this paper was that MR1-restricted T-cells can kill cancer cells. And so the first question the authors ask is, do unconventional T-cells kill cancer cells? They address this by culturing blood cells with cancer cells. They then pull out the proliferating T-cells that are CD4 negative. These are the unconventional T-cells. These T-cells were found to make a lot of tumor necrosis factor, or TNF. Importantly, through the use of blocking antibodies, the authors found that this T-cell activation was MHC1 and 2 independent. Not only were the T-cells able to eradicate established cancer cell lines, but also primary cancer cells. And they did so very efficiently. Even when the T-cells were outnumbered by cancer cells 160 to 1, there was at least 50% killing. That is remarkable. Further, these T-cells were not cytotoxic towards healthy cells, so it seems they have cancer specificity. The authors next investigated what else could be presenting antigen, if not MHC. They designed a super clever experiment to approach this. First, they designed a whole-genome CRISPR-Cas9 lentivirus library, where each lentivirus contained a single gene-specific short-guide RNA. This library was then transduced into tumor cells. This led to a single gene being knocked down in each tumor cell. Then, the cytotoxic T cells were cultured with the tumor cells. If a given cancer cell lived, that meant that the gene that was knocked down was essential for cytotoxicity. They then sequenced the short-guide RNAs of the surviving T cells. There were a few gene targets enriched in the short-guide RNAs, but the one they chose to focus on was MR1. This is one of the atypical antigen-presenting molecules we discussed previously. Are these unconventional T-cells being activated through antigen presentation by MR1? The authors went on to perform several experiments in order to demonstrate that MR1 is necessary and sufficient for the activation of these unconventional T-cells. What kind of antigen are the cancer cells presenting to the T-cells? By using tetramer staining, the authors demonstrated that these T-cells were unable to recognize any of the typical MR1-presented antigens. The authors were unable to fully flesh out the mechanism, so they moved on to more safety and efficacy studies. In terms of safety, 
the authors showed that the T-cells are not cytotoxic towards activated, stressed, or infected cells. Up to this point in the paper, all of the studies have been done in vitro. How would these unconventional T-cells perform in an in vivo cancer model? The answer is extremely well. The median lifespan of treated mice doubled. Now, if you thought that was cool, wait till you hear about this last experiment. The authors took T-cells and cancer cells from patients with melanoma, a notoriously difficult-to-treat cancer. They then transferred the T-cell receptor from the unconventional T-cells identified in the earlier studies to the patient's T-cells. This enabled the patient's T-cells to kill the tumor cells. Further, this patient's newly transformed T-cells could be used to kill another patient's cancer cells. Sounds like a great potential therapeutic. To summarize this exceptional paper, the authors identified a T-cell that can attack many types of cancer cells, both in vitro and in vivo, and importantly, without harming healthy cells. This report very well may lead to a pan-cancer immunotherapy treatment for cancer patients. The ultimate discovery of the MR1 antigen that's being presented could lead to a vaccine. This was truly a great paper, and like most great papers, it has left me with many questions. First and foremost, what the heck is the antigen? And from a more philosophical standpoint, why do cancer cells still make this antigen if it's leading to their death? In terms of future human studies, how will these unconventional T-cells perform in vivo? Will they work for liquid tumors and solid tumors? Lastly, the CRISPR screen identified several additional genes. What role are these playing in cancer cell lysis? Alrighty, that concludes today's paper. Let's now talk about habits that we can take up in order to improve our own science as well as the greater scientific community. The practice that I would like to highlight today is meeting patients with the disease that we study. I have been fortunate enough to work with MDs who have given me opportunities to interact with these patients. Personally, nothing gives me more motivation than seeing someone suffer. Every time I interact with these patients, it reminds me why I got into science in the first place. Unfortunately, it can be really easy to forget this working at the bench. So I actively seek out opportunities to participate in patient care. I believe this practice benefits society in a multitude of ways, and that we should all aim to do this. And with that, we have another episode down. Cheers, everybody.